Chapter 10 The Last Things With the Assumption of the Virgin Mary, we cross the boundary which separates the earthly and heavenly worlds. Certainly, since divine mercy came to be manifested among us in the person of the Incarnate Word, innumerable graces tie the heavenly world to the earthly world. But we know, all the same, that for each of us, in spite of the grace of the sacraments, there remains a consequence of original sin from which no one can escape, death. But is it not true that, for Christians, the death of our Lord softens the rigor of this punishment, of this chastisement? With him we die with whom we lived. With him also we will live, and we will arise from the dead. The entire life of faith and of grace teaches us to turn ourselves toward heavenly things. Terrestria contemnere et amare celestia. How many times do the liturgical prayers repeat this maxim to us, despise the things of this world and love those of heaven? St. Paul gives us the reason. The former are passing, the latter are eternal. Death makes us thus pass from this ephemeral world to the spiritual world, in which even the risen bodies will be spiritualized. Seminatur corpus animale, surget corpus spirituale. It is sown a natural body, it shall rise a spiritual body. 1 Corinthians 15.44 That is why the last things ought to interest us supremely, and this all the more because our actions here below prepare this future eternity. To live in indifference to our unawareness of our final end is insane. It is the fundamental motive of the incarnation of the redemption, the return to God by Jesus Christ. This is the essential perspective of the Summa Theologiae of St. Thomas, for it is the essential reason why we exist, to be with God forever. Hence the great necessity of constantly returning to the last things in our preaching. The retreats of St. Ignatius and all other retreats have no other goal, to save souls in sanctifying them by Jesus Christ. All the inspired writings of the New Testament have no other purpose than to make us attentive to the attainment of eternal life and to help us avoid damnation. The entire liturgy of the Church surrounds us, accompanies us, and nourishes us so that we might attain this essential goal. The Church's entire missionary spirit is directed towards the sending of pastors. Eiuntes docete, ite ad vineam meam, Go and teach, go into my vineyard. The Church's teaching on these last things, like that of our Lord, is formal and clear, although certain aspects remain yet mysterious. The certainty of our salvation, the number of the elect and of the damned, the manner in which personal judgment takes place at the instant of our death, the exact nature of purgatory, its duration when we are no longer subject to time, the status of the elect before the general judgment and the resurrection, 
are all realities which remain mysterious for us. Meanwhile, we know, and this is the essential thing, that the happiness of the elect surpasses all that they can imagine, and that hell is a place of atrocious torments. Let us try, with the help of St. Thomas, to clarify a little the teachings of the Church concerning that which Providence has foreseen for us after death. It is good for the priest who has charge of souls to be quite familiar with the world beyond this one, to live always with this reality in mind, and to be able to exactly instruct the dying and the relatives and friends of the deceased. Isn't it one of his principal duties to watch over the faithful during their last hours here below, to enlighten them, to encourage them, and to prepare them by the last sacraments, by the prayers for the dying, and finally to take their mortal remains to the altar of sacrifice and to accompany them to the cemetery? How many precious teachings can be given to those who surround the dead on such occasions? The conciliar novelties in this area are scandalous for the faith of Catholics and border on heresy. The ceremonies leave it to be understood that all souls are saved, for even the worst enemies of Catholicism have access to the church, even the urns of cremated bodies. Priests no longer accompany the body to the cemetery. Purgatory is ignored, rendering prayers and sufferings for the deceased incomprehensible. Whereas, these are also a manifestation of the faith of the Church, which touches the faithful profoundly. What happens at the precise moment when the soul is, in a way, expelled by a body which no longer finds itself capable of being animated by such a soul? St. Thomas, basing himself on our Lord's words themselves, expresses the opinion that souls are automatically drawn to the place to which they are destined, just as bodies are drawn to a place by the attraction of their own weight. Souls in the state of grace, where charity is perfect, are drawn to heaven, where they immediately enjoy the beatific vision, awaiting the complement of happiness which the resurrection of the body will give them souls in the state of grace, but where charity is diminished and imperfect because of venial sin, and who have still to expiate the punishment due for sins already pardoned, go to purgatory. Souls still stained with original sin, but without personal sin, are sent to limbo. They will be deprived of the vision of God, but will also enjoy a natural happiness. Souls in a state of mortal sin, without charity, go to hell forever, awaiting the resurrection of their bodies, which will be a cause of further suffering. Three places are final, heaven, limbo, and hell. No suffering, no prayer, no good deed, no intercession can modify the state of souls which are there. It is clear that all the prayers, supplications, indulgences, and alms advised and realized by the Church for the deceased only have as a goal the soothing and deliverance of souls in purgatory who can no longer do anything for themselves. 
This is why it is necessary to insist on the fact that the existence of purgatory is an article of faith. He who denies purgatory is heretical. If purgatory did not exist, all that the church has done since its origin, or asked to be done on behalf of the dead, would be pointless. Certainly the souls in purgatory progressively approach heaven and will be freed after their purification, but the supplications of the church militant can effectively help them to be delivered more rapidly, especially by the offering of the holy sacrifice of the Mass. Nevertheless, the souls in purgatory, animated by charity, can intercede for us. They will do it so much more ardently if we come to their aid. If we wish to conform ourselves to the spirit of the church, we must have true devotion towards the souls in purgatory, where very probably we will spend a longer or a shorter time. Let us hope so, for this will be the sign of our election. If we could know the holiness and the incomparable purity of God, we would not be surprised that he discovers in us imperfections which are discordant with the sanctity of the Holy Trinity. We will not develop the subject of limbo, where souls are found who only have original sin but no personal sin. These souls are deprived of the beatific vision, but knowing that they have an absolute incapacity of possessing it, they do not suffer. This is the opinion of St. Thomas and of the majority of the doctors of the church. This is a precious help in replying to parents whose baby has died before it could be baptized without any fault on their part. But what responsibility, by contrast, for mothers who use abortion and for those who contribute to it? How can we not fear the curse of God in this world and in the next for these crimes? Now that all dogmas are placed in question even inside the church, it is important to know the doctrine of the church in order to reaffirm it and to save souls. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Without doubt, filial fear is more desirable than servile fear, and contrition more desirable than attrition. The fear of hell is salutary, because it keeps souls far from mortal sin. Men are right to fear this horrible punishment that our Lord speaks of in terms which make us tremble, for it is an immediate and eternal chastisement, without possible remission, because hatred destroys all charity, and the absence of charity is hell. What we must strive to destroy at any price is the habit of mortal sin or of remaining for a long time in the state of mortal sin. When speaking of this, we ought to repeat and unceasingly meditate on the gravity of mortal sin and its consequences. Two subjects of meditation, unveiling for us the seriousness of mortal sin, which can be said to be infinite, should be before our eyes. The sole sin of disobedience of Adam and Eve provoked two effects, which ought to suffice to distance us from all mortal sin. The first consequence is that all evils, including the most horrible that can be imagined right down to hell, 
were unleashed on their descendants. The history of humanity is the history of sufferings, of wars, of sickness, of the cruelty of men towards one another, of death. But it is especially a history of moral misery, deserving an eternity of fire. One single sin provoked these innumerable evils. The second consequence is the death of God on the cross, a death valued by God himself as the sole suitable means to thwart the consequences of sin and to make those who believe in him live again spiritually and one day even physically. They will receive from him the grace of divine life, the prelude to life eternal. Let us ask Our Lady of Sorrows about this passion and this death. May she help us to understand the sorrow and the charity of God, crucified in the flesh he deigned to receive from her. A single sin provoked the passion and the crucifixion of the incarnate Word. Would that, by these considerations, we might avoid all serious sin, and help our faithful to do likewise, and in the case of a fall, to use the plank of salvation, the sacrament of penance. Here again we see Holy Mass, the sacrifice of the cross, lifted up as a sign of salvation and of victory against Satan, against sin, against death, against the world. Mors mortua tunc est, Death has now died. Ave crux, space unica. Hail, O cross, our holy hope. In occidio vinces. By this sign you will conquer. We should not hesitate to speak of hell, as our Lord himself did in many circumstances. He described for us the fire of hell, the unending sorrows, its eternal duration. We must echo these words of our Lord to save the souls of the faithful. Every day we offer the holy sacrifice for this intention, to save the Christian family from eternal damnation. Ab eterna damnatione nos edipi. We should now meditate on the heavenly homeland where are found the sanctified and purified souls who finally enjoy eternal happiness. Meanwhile, like St. Thomas, before contemplating the dwelling place of the Holy Trinity, let us say a few words about retribution and the general judgment. Our Lord teaches us that this world will have an end when God in His all-powerful wisdom decides that the number of the elect has been completed. Preceding signs will announce this end, in particular the coming of the Antichrist. But no one knows the day nor the hour. God reserves this secret to himself. Meanwhile, Holy Scripture and tradition teach us that this end will take place suddenly, in ictu oculi, in the blink of an eye. Then the predicted events will unfold. The omnipotence of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ 
will be manifested by the immediate purification of the souls in purgatory, and by the death and immediate purification of the souls who will have to be purified and who will be witness to all these events. At the sound of the trumpet of the angels, all bodies will rise again to complete the glory of the elect and increase the sufferings of the damned. Then our Lord will appear in his glory to accomplish the general judgment, which will place a final end to the history of humanity. For he will glorify his mystical spouse, the church, and all the members of his mystical body, drawing them after him into the bosom of the blessed Trinity forever, and he will also throw into eternal darkness all those who have not believed in him, or who in their lives refused the charity of the Holy Ghost in opposing the law of charity written in their hearts, preferring to follow their passions and their suicidal egotism. St. Thomas thinks that the general judgment will be perceived by a particular mental illumination, making obvious to all the sentences applied to each. We can believe that from this instant the elect will be luminous, as though enveloped by the nuptial robe, while the damned will be in darkness. The angels, then, will soon group the predestined around our Lord, and thrust his enemies into hell. Thus our Lord will accomplish the return to God. Blessed are those who pass their life making the hearts of Jesus and Mary reign in them and around them, and who strive to always accomplish their will, filled with the grace of the Holy Ghost, which they received especially by the baptism of water, or the baptism of blood, or the baptism of desire. Then there will be no ecumenism, no religious liberty, nothing but Catholic Christians, including converts from false religions. What a marvelous and consoling doctrine is that of the Catholic Church, which was revealed by the incarnate Word of God in the course of human history, which he brought to its final perfection when he dwelt among us. The apostles faithfully transcribed and transmitted this precious deposit, and thus closed the prophetic era. Then began the dogmatic era, in the course of which the Church defined what constituted the deposit. The fathers and theologians of the Church, under the vigilance of the Church, have faithfully scrutinized this deposit, interpreted it, organized it, and defended it against heresies. St. Thomas shines among them like a light. His Summa Theologiae is a masterpiece of collaboration between faith and reason to establish revelation on irrefutable foundations. It clearly shows that these two are of divine origin and thus cannot but mutually confirm one another. Faith remains nevertheless the surest source of the knowledge of God and of divine things. It remains the golden rule of wisdom. The Summa can be summarized thus, to come from God, to return to God by the means of God, such is man's destiny. What a marvel, what an ideal, 
when we discover this program in the school of St. Thomas, we are thrust constantly into admiration and contemplation of the mysteries of the wisdom, of the knowledge, and of the charity of God, and of his mercy towards his human creatures. This study must conclude with a consideration of the ineffable gift that God makes of himself to his elect by the incarnate word, a gift which surpasses all expression and all description, as St. Paul affirms, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man, what things God has prepared for them that love him. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 God, pure and eternal Spirit, has created us in his image, spirits also, endowed with intelligence and will, in order to enable us to know him, to love him, and to rejoice in him eternally. For this end, that is, to see him and rejoice in him, he had to confer on our spirit, on our soul, an additional perfection to make us participants in his divine nature and to elevate our faculties above ourselves, that we might be able to contemplate him as he knows himself. It goes without saying that our contemplation of him is not to the same degree that he knows himself. This is reserved to the divine persons. Our minds will not see an image or an idea of God, but God himself, without intermediary. God, who is supremely intelligible, will become himself the immediate object, the form of our understanding. We will know him in truth as he is. That is why it is impossible for us here below to imagine what this vision could be, which will set our souls afire with an unfailing love for Jesus and the Holy Trinity. Then the glory of God, his splendor and his light, will cover us and make us glorious. Then this glory will extend to our spiritualized bodies, endowed with the properties of impassibility, subtlety, agility, and clarity. What we will see in God will surpass all that we can imagine in terms of beauty, goodness, and splendor. We will admire the church triumphant, and especially our Lord with all his royal and divine privileges, Mary, Queen of Heaven, adorned with all her gifts, the myriad of archangels and angels, and all the elect with their diversity of glory measured according to their degree of charity. God will truly be all in all, honored and adored as he should be. Nothing will be out of place. In the light of the infinite being, of the Holy Trinity, of his perfections, our souls will be transported in thanksgiving for all that God has deigned to undergo for our salvation. We will be confounded by the mercy that God has exercised on our behalf. Tradition teaches us that the virgins, the martyrs, and the doctors will have particular halos which will add to their glory. Before these perspectives, which are the object of our faith and the goal of our existence, how can we not weep, like our Lord in his agony in the Garden of Olives, at the thought of all the souls separated from our Lord, 
despising him by indifference, by forgetfulness, by sin leading themselves to hell. Our Lord, in his missionary charity, climbed the cross, for it is by it that he wished to open the gates of salvation and earn merits capable of saving all of humanity. He then chose twelve apostles, communicated to them the power of his sacrifice, power over his body and his blood, making them priests of his priesthood. He instructed them and sanctified them through the Holy Ghost, then sent them to the ends of the earth to announce the news of salvation, sanctifying by baptism and the sacraments those who believe in his name. In following the apostles, we also are destined to participate in his priesthood, or we already participate in it. Let us place all our trust in him who sends us, our Lord Jesus Christ crucified. Like the apostles, let us preach the true doctrine of salvation by our Lord, and let us offer the redeeming sacrifice. The results will be like those of the apostles. Some will believe, and others will turn away. We will listen to you another time. Acts 17.32 Some will persecute us, as they did our Lord and the apostles. They hate me, they will also hate you. See John 15.18-20 What matters for us in our priestly lives is to avoid everything which can be an obstacle to the effectiveness of our apostolate, and especially to abandonment of the spirit of prayer and union with God. Let us keep the faith above all else. It is for this that our Lord died, because he asserted his divinity. It is for this that all the martyrs died. It is by this that all the elect are sanctified. Let us flee from those who make us lose the faith or diminish it. O Timote, depositum custodi, devitans profanas vocum novitates, certa bonum certamen fidei, apprehende vitam eternam. 1 Timothy 6, 20, 12. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding the profane novelties of words. Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life. Elegit nos in ipso ante mundi constitutionem ut esimus sancti. Ephesians 1.4 He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy. <laughs>